0: Welcome to Anthropod. This is Anar Parikh, and I'm thrilled to bring you this episode, When Fieldwork Breaks Your Heart, guest produced by Aisha Sultan, a PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide, Australia. Just in time for Valentine's Day, Aisha and her interlocutors, Professor Helen Lee and Dr. Shoshana Williams, explore the gritty underbelly of anthropology's first love, ethnographic fieldwork. While our disciplinary tendency is to extol the virtues of our methodological and theoretical core. Aisha interweaves excerpted field notes, poetry, and personal reflection into her discussion with Professor Lee and Dr. Williams to consider the less romantic realities of doing ethnography.
1: She walked down from the parklands. Berg Rhineless Middle Smoked Bacon, 500 grams, $4, $8 per kilogram. She has a gash across the back of her head. Alcafe Cafe Style Frothy Sachets, 10 pack, $3, 30 cents per sachet. Jules and I take turns to apply pressure on the wound to stop the bleeding. Just Organic Natural Yogurt, 1 kilo, $5, 50 cents per 100 grams. Peter calls emergency services. El Toro Taco Kit 375 grams, $3.81 per 100 grams. She starts to doze off. I ask her if she has a favourite song. She tells me about her five-year-old instead. Dyson Laundry Soaker and In-Wash Booster 1 kilo, $3. $3 per kilo. Julius Dog Treat Straps 16 pack 125 grams $1.49 $1.19 per 100 grams. Protein Color Protect Shampoo or Conditioner 400 millilitres $3.75 per 100 mils. It takes the paramedics 35 minutes to arrive. I tell them she might be pregnant. Health and Vitality Vegetable Lasagna 400 grams $2.69 $0.73 per 100 grams. My hands start to shake my hands start to shake.
2: What to do when fieldwork threatens to break you? What if some of the things we encounter as researchers make us angry and leave us feeling helpless? How might we best prepare for and live with the suffering of others without burning out? How to reconcile the roles and responsibilities of outsider researcher and engage participant observer? To what extent is this even possible? These are some of the questions I have grappled with while working with women experiencing homelessness. I've felt joy, excitement, sorrow and anger. I feel their grief as a knot in my stomach or a tangle in my thoughts. I worry about the way my research might adversely affect my participants. At times, I've also been bored, frustrated and even, let's be honest, annoyed and conflicted, not only with the system but with my participants as well. During field work, we as anthropologists are expected to immerse ourselves into a cultural web or fabric and acknowledge that we are not detached or impartial observers, but in fact people who are emotionally, intellectually, and physically embedded in the world of our field sites. However, When we return from the field, we are encouraged to distance ourselves from the weight of these experiences and extricate our emotional insights from our analysis. The mental and physical strain of ethnographic fieldwork is at once readily acknowledged and sometimes romanticised while at the same time we are discouraged from including these experiences in our formal writing. Even in scholarly discussions and pre-field seminars about ethnographic methods, the emotional labour and the effects of ethnographic fieldwork on the researcher's body, psyche, worldview and moral compass are often lighted. Moreover, even though the emotional and personal challenges of fieldwork are dismissed in anthropology's more formal spaces, Most of our informal and private conversations, in contrast, seem to be centred around how overwhelming fieldwork can be and how hard it is to speak of this because we fear that our research will not be taken seriously. So in this episode, I reflect on my own experiences and challenges and explore the personal and emotional dimensions of ethnographic fieldwork through a conversation with Professor Helen Lee and Dr. Shoshana Williams. Helen has published widely on migration, transnationalism, as well as Tongan history and society. She is the Professor of Anthropology at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, where she teaches first-year students as well as later-year students. Shoshana's doctoral thesis, in turn, explored vulnerability and resilience of women experiencing homelessness in a train station in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Shoshana has a background in occupational therapy, and has worked as part of numerous community-based health projects here in Adelaide, Australia, as well as overseas. Helen, it's been roughly about 30 years yes. since your field work mm. in Tonga. Can you tell us a bit about your experience? Uh, so I went to Tonga
3: for my PhD research, and I wanted to very broadly study childhood and the mm-hmm. experience of childhood with the basic premise of, you know, what is it that makes you Tongan rather than anything else. Partly for personal reasons, but also because I just found it really interesting, the study of childhood. So I went to live in a village called Holonga on the main island of Tonga. And then during the field work I also spent a little bit of time on the island called Ewa.
2: What surprised you the most in terms of doing fieldwork? I think I was
3: not expecting to have to think on my feet quite so much but I didn't really have much preparation I didn't go to Tonga armed with a whole interview schedule and questionnaires and everything I sort of did that on the run and I hadn't really thought how difficult it would be to to figure out as I went along what I needed to do and to deal with all of the different events that came up and just to be so flexible.
2: 30 years ago, it was quite different in terms of what the uni would ask from PhD students in preparation.
3: It was completely different. I would never send one of my students out the way I went I started my PhD and within a couple of months I went off to do my field work because I'd lived in Tonga before my supervisors just assumed that I would be able to just step straight in and there was no ethics. There was only a very brief meeting, a pre-field work meeting. I had very, very little advice about well, what I was going to be doing I had written a research proposal which didn't actually include methodology just this is what I'm interested in looking at then I just set off. So Shanna
2: did you feel prepared or unprepared?
4: I, I felt incredibly prepared because I'd been researching urban poverty for almost two years. I had all this feedback about how great my methods section was, my proposal, and I really thought that I'd thought through a lot of issues, but I hadn't anticipated what it was going to be like. And so I had a false sense of bravado and made a whole set of assumptions. For example, when I was doing fieldwork in slums, people there were very willing to talk to us and seemed happy to sit and chat. Whereas, you know, the women that I worked with initially really didn't want to talk to me. I just hadn't even thought through that, might have been a possibility.
2: Can you tell us a bit about who were you working with? So
4: I wanted to research uh, women who experienced homelessness in Dhaka. It kind of arose out of me working in this urban poverty space and urban poverty was really spatialized into slums and, and there was really no real discussion to talk about homelessness and it was largely absent in the literature, particularly qualitative work. There was a couple of surveys and that's it. I came into the field of anthropology and development, not having done a undergrad in it. I studied occupational therapy, so disability rehab, and I'd been involved in public health for a while, and that kind of segued into this. So I'd gone in with my ideas, and my supervisors started to have conversations with me about the theoretical framings. And so I'd I'd just gone, okay, great, let's just go with vulnerability and resilience. That's what I'll research, sure. Not really knowing what I could or should Mm. research and so I went in and I chatted to service providers and they were like oh well if you want to research vulnerability you have to go to this train station I was
2: like okay sure what was the most surprising difficult element that you didn't anticipate while beginning field work not expecting that
4: people just wouldn't
2: want to engage at all
4: Mm. or that when I did start to talk to people about their experiences that there was a lot of not, not wanting to talk about what was really going on. I hesitate to say lying, but there was a lot of obscuring of, of some of the more difficult, painful realities of what made up women's lives.
2: They were obscuring it from you?
4: I think so. But maybe sometimes also from themselves. Sometimes people would completely obliterate the fact that they'd had a child that, was, that they'd either sold... Sometimes, or that that died, or that they felt like they'd been forced to adopt to family or friends. Yeah, that was a lot of that, and also was a, there was a lot of shame around having experienced multiple marriages. A lot of women had, had multiple marriages that they just kind of left out of their narratives on a first run. It took a lot of multiple sittings mm. and conversations and piecing together what it was and, and as we gradually built that trust some of those details came out but other details like children were often told to me by other women
3: For me, I think the surprising thing is probably something that isn't that common in people's experience but because I'd been married to a Tongan before and I'd lived and worked in Tonga before nobody took me seriously that I was there as a researcher and that was a shock for me because I went there all thinking oh I'm a PhD student I'm going to do this big research project and I went to live in the village uh, with people that I knew and for the entire time I was there they just humoured me, or and they sort of assumed I was there to look for another Tongan husband, even as the evidence of me being pregnant became obvious. And I had my son with me, it was quite strange. So I had these very strange experiences of interviewing people who were just humouring me. So it was, it kind of became difficult to take myself seriously because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was that odd. would have it was quite thoroughly.
4: Odd. That into mm. your
3: imposter syndrome I was yes PhD student <laughs> absolutely yes and I've never got rid of that imposter syndrome by the
2: way do you feel that they were telling you a different story than what perhaps was the story
3: no I felt like it was actually good treating me as if I was I was sort of an honorary Tongan it felt that people were being very open, open. with me and it turned out to be a great advantage to the field yeah. work because I was I mean I was living in a household and people were just completely going about their their daily business and treating me and my son as part of the family and everyone in the village just I was just there the fieldwork that I did ha- had an indelible effect on my brain and my and my mm. psyche and my heart it wasn't that it was easy fieldwork in the sense of what I was observing because I was focused on children and a lot of what I was seeing was violence to children so that was very difficult the ease was just the fact that people accepted me readily and were so open I actually had an encounter with a, a woman at a conference not long after I'd finished my PhD who'd done her fieldwork in Tonga with her husband and a small child with her and they'd lived in their own separate house in this village. And she was arguing with me saying that she didn't see Tongans treating the, their children the way that I'd describe in my thesis and mm. the book that I published from the thesis. And I'm fairly certain it was because people didn't want her to see that because she was very separate in the sense of being you know there with her white husband and her Mm. child and it was a very different thing whereas I was there living in a house with my son who was regarded as a, a Tongan and I was treated as a Tongan so I think I saw a lot of things that I wouldn't have seen if I didn't have that previous connection so in that way it was an advantage but it also meant that I saw a lot of things that I found very distressing All the other kids were getting hit and he wasn't. People thought I was a terrible mother because I didn't discipline him. And he went pretty feral, I have to admit. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't. I don't believe in violence to children. So, you know, I I just couldn't go against my principles. But it ended up being valuable in the sense that it made me have conversations with people about why I didn't. But I was very, very careful not to try to impose my views on them. Um, I wasn't going to preach to them Mm. about how to raise their children. I was there to observe how they raise their children.
2: Was that hard as a researcher and then as a parent? It was hard as a person and
3: a parent. It wasn't hard as a researcher because as an anthropology undergraduate cultural relativism was the emphasis and so that was the main idea of anthropology was all and that you try to understand things from their perspective which is exactly what I was trying to do and for me as a researcher I found it difficult to observe incidents of violence there were also lots of very nice you know of course. Tongans love their children and they do lots of lovely things as well It was just the violence that I found difficult. But as a parent and a person, I found that really challenging. So I had this constant pull between me, the person, and my set of values, and me, the researcher. And, I mean, that's kind of what anthropology is, is that, I think, that tension.
2: The conversations we do have about field work are often tidied up or suppressed. Is there room to have those conversations? Would it be beneficial or not to have those conversations, especially with PhD students?
3: Oh, I would love someone to have had those conversations with me Mm. before I went to the field. Mm not even specifics about what I was going to experience in Tonga, but just what I was going to experience as a researcher. Mm. Even talking through that kind of tug between you as a person, you as a researcher, Mm. I'd gone through when there were no methodology uh, subjects as an undergraduate student. No one had ever really talked through those issues. And ethics, as I said, was not an issue. So, yeah, I would have loved it. I've been an avid reader of people's fieldwork accounts for years, and I think it's because I'm trying to dig through them to find those little bits where they admit the difficulties. And mm. they often they're, I think they're tidied up a little bit. And I'm I'm always fascinated by other people's fieldwork
2: accounts. There seems to be a need for those yeah, conversations. Very
4: much so. And, and I, I put a lot of pressure on myself when I was in the field. To really engage with critically analysing what was going on. And and I wish that I'd given myself the space or been told to give myself the space of just not knowing and being encouraged to make sense of those feelings and work through them in the field mm. and then, you know, put my analysis hat on later.
3: That's true, actually, because it, we don't get encouraged to do the feeling part of it mm-hmm. at all. It's all, if you do get any methodology, it's the intellectual work of it, not that emotional yeah. work.
4: No. Yeah. And and I think when you are researching violence, when you encounter that and you're forced to sit with people for months at a time and just talk about horrific violence and this idea that nothing could ever change. And it's very difficult and it changes you. You start to believe that mm. nothing could ever change. And that's deeply, deeply painful and deeply difficult to, to navigate and i guess as a researcher you can't
3: you can't be saying to your research participants how emotionally distraught you are by their no. their accounts you've got to keep up a face, a face. Yeah. you can't be saying i'm really badly affected by all this because no. You're hearing their stories, it's they're the ones who are in the precarious awful situation. Oh, I nothing about you. Yeah, that's exactly right. but But and then, yeah, you it... are having that experience. Exactly. <laughs> and and
4: we were talking about me and about how I was a trained therapist and how I was told that the people you that you engage with, they will sense how much you can deal with. And if you show that you're not be able to deal with it, then they're gonna stop talking to you.
2: I think I'm in that stage of my fieldwork now where my participants are testing me, sussing me out Mm. that how I react to things that they do, trying to see if I am genuine, reliable, worthy of being given this temporary custodian role of their experiences. Do I understand Mm. something, not the whole experience? Because of course, I as a researcher wouldn't be able to understand what the lived experiences women experiencing homelessness have. And that would be wrong for me to say that I Mm. do understand Mm. but that I can in some ways feel at least a little bit of what they are feeling or going through and that opens up some of that relationship building Mm. and maybe understanding.
3: I think empathy is a good term there where you can't sit there and be blank Mm -hmm. because then you might be seen to be unfeeling or uncaring so you need to show that you're empathetic But yes, without all of the other reactions that may be flying around Mm. in your head and your heart, but simply showing empathy, which I guess is the same sort of principle. So human contact. Yeah. Right. Mm. And
4: actually, it's really interesting that you say that because this woman who verbally assaulted me (laughs) when I was first in the station, we later had a conversation about how she perceived me. And she had a conversation with me about how important it was that I was sitting in the dirt with her. and how. For her, that meant that she was being worthy of being seen and, and being treated like she was human. She talked to me about how, you know, mm. and these all these other people, they treat us worse than dogs. But you, you come and sit with us. And then she talked about, you know, you, you show love and care. You hug us. Mm. And I had no idea that, like, the sitting with and these hugs meant so much. What I failed to, like, think through was the fact that I was working with people who had... Very rarely been shown love and care, and their whole life histories were once of people abusing and exploiting them and being told that they weren't worthy. The public would just walk past them and say, You're never going to get buried. We forget how very small things can be important, and that showing love and care is just as much of a project as anything else that we might do.
2: Crowds jostle, red lipstick, impossibly high heels, a baby, expressionless men, oiled hair. How is it that the largest shopping centre in Melbourne reminds me of the station? I hear the scream, see her face, watch the hands do unspeakable things, smell the in, mixed with decaying flesh. Panic starts in my toes, kills up my legs. I can't breathe. I sit in a coffee shop for hours, drawing angry black lines waiting for the shaking to go there is a homelessness researcher Catherine Robinson who's done work in Sydney with homeless youth and she talks for embodied research she feels that her body is a register for the felt dimensions of homelessness it's what you were just talking about as well the kind of hopelessness and how that then manifests as sorrow through the researcher's body. Prison ethnographers talk Mm. a lot about that, how their body reacts to the confinement of prison, even though they do clearly they're able to walk in and walk out, but how they get cold sores, they get respiratory infections, and it's their body responding to what they're hearing and seeing. Is there a role for those embodied experiences to help us think through or is it more of a hindrance
4: i had reoccurring nightmares and it was of the largest boy in my high school class and and his hand reached out and grabbed his hair and smashed it repeatedly on this metal bench And I think it was a metaphor how angry I was at men, particularly because I witnessed so much police violence in my field site, and then also this perceived hopelessness of of this this boy to do anything against this hand. And, oh, it was very frightening. So, yeah, I, th- I think it is important that it was just one manifestation. But but
3: you it's... don't have a choice. I mean, you, I, don't, exactly. I don't think it's a choice. I think you yeah. are going to have embodied reactions. If you're fully engaged as a field worker, you're going to have those reactions, whether it's nightmares or I spent a lot of time crying or being angry or crying and being mm. angry at the same time. There's no way I could have not. Had those feelings and not being able to sleep, having bad dreams, all of those sorts Mm. of things. And a long time after fieldwork, not just during fieldwork, but a long time. And going through my field notes in preparation for today brought a
2: lot of that back. And that was... 30 years ago 30
3: years ago and when I looked back on those field notes it was as if I'd written them yesterday the the incidents that I was looking at was so vivid in my mind I know exactly where I was I know exactly where the other people I was writing about where I can it's completely burned into my brain
4: there are like very problematic narratives around how trauma and grief and loss operate and how this idea that you go through a grieving period and there's a diagnostic criteria having to experience it for six months and then you've got chronic depression and my experiences of PTSD and depression were really not like that I'd have really good days and then really bad days
3: I think I was lucky in the sense that there were a lot of really great aspects of my fieldwork as well Lots of really fun times, beach picnics and, you know, nice times sitting around with the family. And, you know, the things that I'm referring to were daily events, but they weren't all day, every day. You know, it was balanced out. So I don't think I was nearly as badly affected. But if you're talking to people with the kinds of issues that you were dealing with all day, that would be extremely difficult to deal with. And I really makes me wonder about our duty of care as supervisors, when students come back from the field having had such experiences, or even while they're in the field, what is our duty of care to help them deal with that? My students talk a lot about things that happen to them in the field, but really, we should be urging our students to go and get professional help if they've mm. had difficult mm. experiences. But I was typically really lucky people that don't. I did. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah. And I
4: went to this counselor and I started crying within like the first two minutes yeah. of our session. <laughs> And she was like, I think maybe you should go see a psychologist. But then I was on a waiting list for a couple of months. No. Yeah. yeah but like I'd asked to have access like I was really interested in the area of mental health as an occupational therapist so I'd done like a whole self-care plan and like mm. I'd thought through stuff and I'd asked to have access to psychological services because I knew that counselling services were available through the uni but they couldn't hook it up when I was living overseas my ethics
2: application I wrote that I will be able to access counselling services through the university if need be and mine most probably would have gone through without
3: usually it's counseling services for your participant and Mine. you had to put it for you yeah for myself I've never seen that it made me think though of the the change <sighs> in anthropology from the old days where doing fieldwork was seen as a kind of initiation yes the rite of passage uh, yes and and so as little information was given as possible. I suspect there's a little bit of that now still though even Mm. though you know you might have to say on your ethics application where you can get counselling and you might have a supervisor who directs Mm. you to counselling when you get back but I still think there's a little bit of that ethos of field work as a rite of passage around today. It's almost like you have to suffer during your field work or it's Mm. not real field work.
2: But then again, leaving the field, you should be able to leave all that aside. Do we leave the field? Have those experiences then informed your future research?
4: Your future self, for me, Hmm. completely and utterly changed me. I used to be a fundamental Christian. I became a very... strong feminist and
3: it does have an ongoing impact on your life yeah it does.
4: completely shifted my narratives about how I mm. could understand mm. the world and how I made sense of it and how I understand myself but another thing I wanted to briefly say was around space and creating space and I mean I only went to the station about three times a week I had to wait for translations and I did a lot of coding but also just because some days I just couldn't go and I mean I had this privilege i guess mm-hmm. of being able to remove myself and just be in a completely different space
2: that's what i struggle with a lot because i have fortunately been given by the service that i'm doing my field work through open access and they're like 24 7 the service mm-hmm. open so basically i make my own working hours Mm. when I started of course the whole fear of missing out worrying that if I'm not there every second of the minute every minute of the hour and so on that I'll miss something really fundamental Mm. I treated it as a full-time job plus overtime and that in itself was hard because I didn't have that time to think through what was going on in the field or what was mm. going on for my participants so one afternoon I was reading the Aldi catalogue and I started crying I was like oh so this is the most inoffensive you know <laughs> reading material that I could find at home because I couldn't read anything or I couldn't even listen to music or watch anything because I was just so highly alert Uh, I was like okay this might mean that I need to have some time away but then it still went for a few weeks and it was actually this PhD writing group that I go to and talking with them through things like should I be in the field every day every seven days a week or five days a week kind of not knowing things like that because it's not talked about it's not talked about that ah oh, you have to give yourself some breathing space if possible sometimes you can't have that breathing space That's yeah.
3: true because I mean that's another thing nobody talked to me about that they, they knew I was going to go and live in a house in a village nobody ever said you might want to figure out a way to have time to yourself and I spent a lot of the time in the house feeling sort of angry with myself because I'm quite a private person and I'm not an extrovert and I kind of wished I was because I thought you know I'm I'm there 24 7 in the field I had to make myself go and be in the midst of everything because my instinct was to want to go and hide out in my bedroom (laughs) And I think personality makes a big difference mm. to viewer, which is another thing nobody ever talks about. But if I had been a real extrovert and just been out there being a lot more loud and not as reserved as I am, maybe I would have coped differently.
2: I don't mm. know. But that could have also changed the, the way people would talk to you or feel comfortable talking well, I think to you. That or...
3: it, I think the way I am worked no. well because it was seen as respectful you know Mm. I wasn't pushing myself on people I just sort of stayed in the background and when people were willing to talk to me that was great but I didn't push myself on anybody but I mean my son and I both got really sick for the first couple of months that we were there we were constantly had stomach upsets we both lost a lot of weight couldn't sleep very well there was a television set right next to the wall where our our bed was that was on 24 7 Mm. really loud He was losing weight because everyone was treating him as Tongan. He was reacting to that because he didn't speak Tongan and nobody Mm. would speak English to him. And he didn't like the food. So I came very close to going home after a couple of months. And then we figured out a routine where we could get a bus into town once a week and go to a hotel and have a hamburger. And he could have a swim and that changed the whole dynamic because we had that time. It would have been difficult for him too, really would have been challenging for him as an eight-year-old. So yeah, I think as in the field, you you have to find those spaces that you claim as yours to do what you want to do. Even if it's just for half a day or something, mm. it's, it makes a huge difference.
4: I found it even more all-encompassing when I started to write. Like, that's when it became all-encompassing. Particularly in those first few months, I was having quite significant PTSD and depression. I was so committed to make sense of my data and mm. work out what my thesis structure mm. was going to be. And so it became my world mm. for six months. And when I would start to read people's narratives, it was so painful and distressing so i could really only read for a little while before i just got so overwhelmed with emotion so i had to create space for that but then i would do other things like read theory and it was constantly everything in my life Mm. became about trying to figure it out and in the end i actually write about in my thesis how so much of the vulnerability that constructed women's everyday lives was this, this uncertainty and, and how uncertainty was really the only ongoing feature of women's yeah. everyday. And so and that's where I kind of arrived. There's no making sense of it. There's no grand theory that you just have to be okay with it.
2: How should we balance that immediacy and emotional impact of fieldwork and how to untangle those emotions and thoughts without it becoming more about us as researchers rather than our research and our research participants? I think
4: it can detract from what our participants go through. Hearing and witnessing for a short period of time violence is is nothing. What What they have to experience often for years decades at Mm. a time and I think there is the danger of us detracting from that and that's important to acknowledge as well because in the end it's not really about us
3: it's been interesting over the course of my career because I've seen the the waves of change so when I did my undergraduate when the Clifford and Marcus writing culture had come out, and so there was a lot of issues of representation, and Mm. there was all the angst around who has authority to speak for whom, all of those kinds of questions. And then we had, you know, the reflexive turn Mm. where it was good to write about your experiences, and people went full into writing blow by blow accounts of their fieldwork and what worked and what didn't. And I remember examining theses from that period where there'd be an entire chapter of someone telling me every detail of what happened in their field work and what went wrong and and I was very frustrated with that actually it got to the point where it veered over into self-indulgent and I think since then we've pulled back from that a lot and I I still tell my students my undergrads and my postgrads that you have to be reflexive and it's very rare for people to write up fieldwork without having a reflexive discussion of their position and their impact on the research and vice versa. But I think we've pulled back from the self-indulgent vein that we Mm. headed down for a while. It's more balanced now. But I think there still needs to be that avenue somewhere for people to talk about those experiences
2: so almost in a sense two different things it's, there is the yes. thesis there's all that goes yes. with the academic scholarly side yes. but then to find somehow an avenue to also talk about emotions
3: yeah make sense of the feeling and mm. the mm. so we're trying to really have a pattern for our students of a pre-fieldwork seminar where they get lots of impact from staff and from other students about what they're planning to do so that we can have those conversations about what can be expected that don't seem to happen much and then have a post-fieldwork seminar for people to debrief and I think if we can try and get that happening that will be a good way for people to have an opportunity to talk but some people won't want to talk to a group about their personal emotional reactions and i think that's that's the role of if it's a phd student it's the role of supervisors if it's if it's someone post phd it's the role of the people they're working with their colleagues we need to be able to talk about those kinds of things and not see it as a weakness you can have very emotional reactions that have a long-lasting impact and we shouldn't have to pretend they're not happening
4: for me it was also identifying people who were in Bangladesh with me who could in some way understand Mm. what I was going through so a very big part of my well-being was talking to my research assistant and I I would frame it in terms of getting her to be reflexive around her well-being acknowledging that this research was having an impact on her but in facilitating those conversations for her it was also (laughs) cathartic for me in in allowing myself to express what that was going through.
2: I'm nearing the end of my fieldwork, and somewhat unsurprisingly, I have more questions than I have answers. Is it possible to be deeply engaged and a legitimate researcher at the same time? I'm exhausted in a way that belies words. Does this make me less of an anthropologist? Does this make my data less valid? I'm not sure, but what I know is that the emotions we both convey and suppress shape the stories we tell and the social realities we live in. I also hope that working through the range of emotions, especially the unease and the uncertainty, will foster valuable empirical and theoretical insights. I have been fortunate enough to be able to have these conversations with my peers as well as my supervisors. Without them, I would have drowned in a sea of affliction, and I hope this conversation might be a starting point for further reflection on the challenges of engaging in fieldwork. I will leave you now with a vignette from Helen's field Notes that is indicative of a situation in which a researcher might find themselves in.
0: December 29th, 1988. Leasso was going to be hit for not having his bath when told. He got one hit with the broom and ran away to the end of the garden. Kahlo yelled, yelled to him to come, standing with the broom in hand. He just screamed and sobbed. She walked down to where he was and moved in on him, whacking him with the broom as he stumbled before her, then turned the broom around and whacked him two or three times with the stick end. He ran ahead of her, hysterically screaming. He still didn't go to shower, was too beside himself, and she kept yelling at him, but was interrupted by people coming, and he was left alone for a while.
2: thanks for listening to this episode. This work was supported by the University of Adelaide under the Australian Government Research Training Program Scholarship Scheme. I would like to thank Helen and Soshana for their time and for sharing with us some of the more heartfelt and gritty aspects of their fieldwork. I would also like to thank my PhD writing and support group, The Squad, for their ongoing love and collective wisdom I would also like to thank Shelley Travis for her general podcast advice. A shout out to Andrew Gramp and Paul Chambers for their audio editing and recording advice. I am very pleased that Helka Manninen, Christy Urie and Sarah Pierce were able to read out the poems heard in this podcast. And of course, a big thank you to... Anar, Parikh and the rest of the brilliant and supportive Anthropod crew for giving me the opportunity to try my luck in podcasting. My name is Aisha Sultan, the guest producer of this episode of Anthropod. Anthropod is the podcast for the Society for Cultural Anthropology and produced in collaboration